want you to turn this morning in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to spend some time looking at uh, verses 9 through 11 this morning. Uh, before we do that, okay, here's the deal for junior church, okay? The uh, fourth and fifth graders are staying in for service, okay? Because Mrs. Hoff is getting a break in light of VBS. And the uh, younger children, you can be dismissed uh, to your junior church class this morning. Okay, so fourth and fifth graders, you guys can stay with us today. The younger ones can be dismissed. First Corinthians 6, verse 9. The word of the Lord. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. And you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is a passage of Scripture that to me has has been a fascination. Uh, It answers a very profound question. And that is this. Is anyone beyond hope? Is anyone, in terms of God's grace, simply out of reach? Has anyone slipped too far for the grace of God to reach them in a life-changing and life-transforming way? There are probably some sitting in this room this morning who have asked themselves that question. Have I slipped too far? Far? Am I beyond the reach of God's grace? Is there hope for lasting change in my life? And I believe that this passage of Scripture screams a message of hope for change. In spite of what your background is, in spite of how far you have fallen, in spite of how disgusting you may feel about your sin, I believe that this passage of Scripture screams a message of hope. And it's why I I was going to tile on the end of the passage last week because I believe there is a direct connection between verses 9 through 11 and 1 through 8 and then chapter 5. A direct connection. But at the same time, this passage speaks so much of hope that I, I wanted to take just a little bit of time to unpack the breadth of God's grace that is revealed in this text so that we might go away saying, I have every reason to hope that my life can change and be for the glory of God. He is the God who overcomes things like this. And let me just be honest, okay? And don't be nervous. If your children are sitting in this morning, I'm not going to delve into things that you would find offensive in that regard. I'm not, just not going to spend a lot of time in the list because I think the list is there to serve a purpose. The list has already been hinted at in chapter 5. Eight of the ten are mentioned there. The list unveils for us a serious set of problems. It's fascinating to me that there are ten sins listed and there are ten commandments listed in the Old Testament, even though there is not an equal parallel between the two, there is this emphasis on numerous ways in which we can live in violation of God's plan and of God's purposes. 
And this church is being called to account by the Apostle Paul because of how severely it has slipped away from God's standards and norms that are expected to be followed by believers. In verse 1 of chapter 5, Paul, in, in surprise, says it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, a kind that doesn't exist amongst the Gentiles. When you commit to chapter 6, Paul says, if any of you has a dispute with another in the body of Christ, dare he take it before unbelievers for judgment instead of before the saints? And then verse 8, or verse 90, or verse 80 says, instead you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. Okay, so what's floating in the previous context? What's floating in the previous context is a shocking level of the world is seeping into the church in Corinth. And what is Paul doing? Paul is fighting back against the tide of sin that is seeping into the church and killing its influence and its testimony in the city of Corinth. It is annihilating the church's God-given purpose. Folks, that's what sin always does in our lives. Satan uses sin to kind of wipe out, to annihilate, to steal power from the influence that the church, that Christians are to be in their world and sphere of influence. That's the effect when sin seeps into the body of Christ. And so what Paul gives us, I believe, is a serious set of problems, a sobering warning, and then finally a message of hope. Okay, and what I want us to look at first is what is the serious set of problems that is listed? And at one level, the list is typical, isn't it? Swindlers, greedy, idolaters, adulterers. At one level, it's a, it's a list that sounds a lot like the stuff that we come out of, that we have tendency towards in our lives. It also is a list that I think at some level shows the setting in which this church exists. And it also reveals that human nature is not any different today than it was 2,000 years ago when the Apostle Paul penned this letter under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. The list at certain levels is typical. Second thought is this. The list is not exhaustive, and I don't believe that Paul intended for the list to be exhaustive. It is instead representative. You may look at that list and say, okay, I'm free. Okay, not so quick. Okay, It's intended to show the kinds of things that are coming into the church. It's not intended for you to sit there and say, okay, I don't do that, I don't do that, I don't do that, therefore I must be okay. No, what is Paul doing? He's giving a list that will awaken the church to how shocking sin can become in the context of the body of Christ. He wants the church to, in a sense, be sobered by this serious set of problems that he is addressing. The list also is this. It is jarring. I don't even know that I want to read it again this morning. Okay, why? Because it has a definite unpleasantness to it. That is always the effect of sin. And so the Apostle Paul is listing specific issues so that the church becomes aware that these things are not to be present in the context of the body of Christ. And so he lists sins against God, he lists sins of the flesh, and then he delves into one of the rare mentions in the New Testament of the sin of homosexuality. Now, let me just say this quickly. What is the question that always used to linger in my mind as a younger person is, could that sin be forgiven? Okay? Can that sin be forgiven? 
Right? That's the question that hung in my mind. Hangs in the mind, I believe, of many Christians. I believe that is why the Apostle Paul listed in a list like this. Okay? He's, he's a, sin is sin. Sin is rebellion against God's plan, against God's design. And so Paul, in a sense, lumps it together with sin. What is sin? Sin is rebellion against God's plan. It is rebellion against God's plan for sexuality. That is true in relationship to adultery. Sin in the con- for someone who is married. It's true for fornication, which is sexual sin for someone who is not yet married. And it's true in the context of same-sex relationships. All of those issues are addressed very clearly and very directly in this passage of Scripture. But they are not dressed, addressed in exclusion or apart from other sins that are present in the context of the church. They are all ultimately sins against God. Now, why does Paul take time to address these things so clearly and so vividly and so starkly, if you will, in such a jarring way? I believe the answer is this. If the church is unwilling to speak with certainty, with biblical accuracy about sin, there is no need in our world for the cross of Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? If, if we don't call sin, sin, then the cross becomes... Empty of purpose and reason. Okay, it is only when we speak honestly to the nature of sin that the purpose for the cross comes with greater clarity. And so the first is this serious set of problems that basically points to our need for help from God. Why? Because those problems that are listed describe people in the context of Corinth and describe people in the context that you and I live in today. It's not a new list. Okay, It's an old list that is relevant in the context of our lives today. So we need to speak clearly to the serious set of problems. Second thing that emerges in the text is a very serious and sobering warning. Verse 9, notice how Paul starts. Don't you know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? What is he, what is he springboarding off of? He's springboarding off of verse 8 because there he says this. He says... Instead, you yourselves, the body of Christ, brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, are cheating and doing wrong, and this to your brothers. That is within the context of your church family. And Paul is shocked by that. Okay, now, what is the sober warning that he then puts forward? The warning is this. Those that are... I want to be very careful how I say this. Those that are wicked, that live in sin as a norm, as a habit of life, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, Tim, what is the essence of the warning? I think the essence of the warning is this. Examine your heart to see if genuine conversion has taken place. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Who is it that he's describing? The wicked are those, and and just see if this makes sense, those Whose, whose sin as a pattern have a lifestyle of sin without repentance defined in this list. If those kinds of sins are normative and there is no sense of conviction and need for repentance, what is Paul saying? Paul's saying you need to examine your heart to see if there has been genuine conversion because a genuine follower of Christ will not be able to persist in these sins. And, and the way that he describes it is this. The wicked do not inherit the kingdom of God. And he makes that statement two times. 
He makes it at the beginning of verse 9, and then look at the end of verse 10. After the list of problems, what does he say? They, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay? I can't read that text and tell you that it means something different than a warning to the, those that are part of the body of Christ to be sure that their life is not characterized by worldliness. Let's see if we can tweak this out a little bit. A clarification from 1 John chapter 3. Because I don't, I don't want to confuse you this morning. 1 John chapter 3 and... Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. Why don't you turn there real quick, because I want to make sure this is clear for you. 1 John 3, verses 8 through 9. Here's what the Bible says. He who does what is sinful is of the devil. Now, if you go into this, this is in the present tense. He who persistently sins, okay, that is the norm. He could be called an adulterer, okay? Persistent pattern, unrepentant, unbroken. He who does what is sinful is of the devil. He who, or because the devil has been sinning from the beginning, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Verse 9, and this becomes with greater clarity. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him and he cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. Okay? Notice what it's saying. If someone sins and continues to sin, and there is no knocking on the door of the heart from the Spirit of God saying, you can't go here. And Paul's raising a question. John is raising a question. Has there been genuine conversion if someone still can be called, if you go back to the list, a swindler? That's what they're known as. That is the norm in their life. A thief. That's the norm in their life. They're uh, unfaithful to their wife, and that is the norm in their life. Paul's asking the question. John is making a statement that those who have been converted by the grace of God have been delivered from the list of sins. Do you see? And then the sobering warning is, if you haven't been delivered from the list of sins, in, in a way that demonstrates some degree of capacity to live in freedom, to live with victory, and Paul's raising the question, those that can be called idolaters, those that can be called liars, it's the norm. They don't inherit the kingdom of God. That is sobering, isn't it? And John, I think, brings some clarification to what is being said here. And then Paul says, <clears throat> verse, in the middle of verse 9, he says, do not be deceived. Okay? Don't, don't feel certain about conversion if there's no evidence of conversion. Does that make sense? Don't feel sure that you know God if there is no calling of the Spirit of God in your life and heart to righteousness. So there's a warning. Jesus put it this way. He said, Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus also said, There is a broad way that leads to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. There is a narrow way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. Anthony Hokema said this. He said, A Christian does not keep on doing and enjoying sin with complete abandonment. And I think that is a crucial distinction here. A Christian may slip into sin, but guess what happens? The Spirit of God comes. Why? You're His child. He is like the hound of heaven. He will not let you go. That's the grace of God, folks. The evidence of change is that when I sin, I feel like a piece of trash. 
and I need to experience God's grace and forgiveness. So if when you sin, God comes hard after you, God pursues you, He will not let you be something in that list. That is an evidence of His converting grace. Is it fun? No. No. Would you want to live without it? That persistent pursuit of God that does not let you go into sin with complete abandonment is the work of the Spirit of God. It is the evidence of change. And Anthony goes on to say this, he or she is not able to keep on sinning with enjoyment. Does that make sense? The pleasure of sin, it it flies away. It can't bring satisfaction to someone who has been born again by the grace of God. And it is the evidence of change. C.J. Mahaney puts it this way, Though I will sin, I will never again be able to enjoy sin as a lifestyle. See, What is Paul saying? Don't be deceived. Those that enjoy sin as a lifestyle are unconverted. Now, do I like saying that to you? No. Should I say it to you? Yes. Yes. Though I will sin, I will never again be able to enjoy sin as a lifestyle. It, there will be this, every believer has this. Uh, Galatians 5. The flesh wars against the spirit, and the spirit wars against the flesh. You can't do the things that you want to do, that your flesh is craving. The spirit of God is saying, no. You've been changed. You can't treat your mate like that anymore. You can't look at that stuff anymore. And the Spirit of God brings this antagonism into your heart. He fights against your flesh to free you so that you can be a witness to the glory of the life-changing power of God. That's what He does. Folks, that is the uncomfortable, gracious work of God. It's kind of like going to the dentist. Okay, When they do what they do, it hurts, especially if you're like me. I'm afraid of needles, so I take it, you know, just kind of lay there and ah, and just take it. And it is excruciating. It's better than needles, but it's excruciating. But the benefit of it is healing, is health. Okay, And the Spirit of God is the gracious work of God in your heart that makes sin uncomfortable and unenjoyable. Thank God for that. He gives the capacity to be freed and to be different. Obedience and holiness, a pursuit and desire for that, is evidence of of conversion. But if persistent, deliberate, unrepentant sin is present, we must evaluate the genuineness of our conversion experience. I believe that is the direct thrust of this passage. Okay, so I find a serious list of sin. I find a sobering warning. And the last thing I find in this text is a message of hope. And this, this verse is what is what attracts me to want to deal with this paragraph independently. It's this statement in verse 11. And that is what some of you were. Okay, now go back and look at the list. I'm not going to read it to you again. Look at the list. Look at it. It is shocking. It is jarring. It is not comprehensive. There is more that could be said. So whatever else you can imagine that may be an outflow of those sins, because we know this, folks, there are more grievous things than that that one can do. Okay? And Paul says, and such were some of you. What is he saying? 
there are, or there were, in the church in Corinth, representatives of those lifestyles who had been converted by the grace of God. Who had been liberated. Who had been freed. Who no longer could be called fornicators. Why? Because they were now faithful sexually. Who could no longer be called adulterers because they loved their wife with a sincere commitment that did not let them wander outside of the boundaries. They were not that anymore. As a norm. As a habit. As a pattern of life. Such were some of you. William Barclay calls this Paul's shout of triumph. What is he saying to the church? This is your story. Some of you were like that. There were representatives of the church in the church of people who used to live like that, who had now been set free. And now you start to get the essence of Paul's concern here. It's why in chapter 5, when he deals with shocking immorality, it is that for him. It is shocking. When he sees the church exhibiting a lack of love, a, a, a hatred, a, a stealing from each other, or lawsuits, it moves him in this direction. You used to be like that. Fight, don't let that. What's happening? It's seeping back into the church. And what is Paul saying? Fight against that. Don't let that old way be characteristic of the body of Christ. Because when it is characteristic of the body of Christ, the world on the outside is pointing in and saying, I thought they were Christians. I thought they were Christians. That's why in chapter 5, Paul says, if there is someone who is a professing believer, what is he doing? He's bringing in a third category of people. There are those that do not know Christ and are clear about it. There are those that know Christ and are clear about it. There is a third set of people in the context of the body of Christ. Those that believe that they have been converted, but have no evidence of it. And it is that group of people that the Apostle Paul is challenging the church to be very, very careful about. Examine your heart. But the note of hope, the message of joy that he gives, is such were some of you. Now, if I flip that around another way, how do I say it? Such were some of you. How would I say it? Let me use the words of Matthew Henry. Here's what he said. You are not what you were. Isn't that beautiful? As Paul looks at the church, truly converted people, he can say this to them, you are not what you used to be. Corey Moos, you are not what you used to be. Because God has changed your life. Kathy Hoplin, you are not what you used to be. But do you understand the power of that? Bobby Bresney, you're not what you used to be. Why? Well, because Bobby grabbed his bootstraps and pulled himself up. No? No? Why is it that people who used to live in these things that are shocking and jarring can now be spoken of by Paul as people that have been changed. Notice the rest of the verse. He says, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God moved on your life and you will never be the same. Folks, that's why a ministry like the Walter Hoving Home is such a cause for joy. For every woman in that home who has come to saving faith in Christ, we can go to them and say, you are not what you used to be. You are different. Why? Because of reformation? Personal attempts at recovery? No. No. Because you came to a point in your life where you realized that I cannot change myself. My sin is too deep. My situation too desperate. The list is sobering. The warning is sobering. 
If I'm going to have a place in the kingdom of God, it will only be because God has intervened in my life with His sovereign grace and changed my heart. Folks, that's the message of hope. You know what that means? And this is irritating grace. It means there is no one in your life that God does not want you to share the good news of Christ with. In spite of how shocking their sin may be to you. God can change them. It also means that no matter what your status is this morning, God wants to and has the power to change your life. And if you sense the Spirit of God knocking on the door of your heart, I would beg of you this morning to yield to the life-changing power of the work of God. Paul describes this work of God using three very simple words that are common in theology throughout the Word of God. And he uses these words to describe a hope that all sin repented of can be forgiven. You are washed. Means cleansed from defilement of the previous life. Titus 3.5 gives us a very brief summary of this work. It says He saved us, God, not because of the righteous things we had done. So important. But because of His mercy, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You were, you were like that. You had that old lifestyle, but today you are different. Why? Because God has taken the defilement in your life and has shattered it, has broken it off of your life, has washed it away with all of its defilement. Second word He uses, you were sanctified. I love this statement. You were set apart from that old lifestyle of defilement and perversion to become an instrument that God can use for His glory. Folks, this is what bothers people in the world. This is the irritation of grace. They want to say, religious people always want to say, that people in that list are without hope. They don't believe that the person who was stolen from them can be forgiven. They don't believe that the person who has been unfaithful with a dear friend can be forgiven. They don't want to believe that. They want to believe they're okay, that they're forgivable, they're redeemable. But the message of grace says that God will take anyone, set them apart, sanctify them, make them holy, make them saints, and put them in the realm of purpose and usefulness to God Himself. Paul says, you were washed, you were sanctified, and then the last thought is this, you were justified, and I'll just give you the simple definition is this, you were, formerly a sinner, made righteous by God. You say, Tim, what does that mean? It means that the adulterer in the church in Corinth that had come to faith in Christ was no longer accountable before God for their sin. Why? Because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, stood in their place and took the hit that their adultery deserved. And so you go on with every sin in the list. There is no one in your life, in spite of how far they appear to be from God, who is beyond the reach of His grace. There is no person in your life that God can't change by His grace. Now, let me give you some relief from this passage. All three of these verbs are in the passive tense, meaning they are all things that God did for these individuals. They aren't things they did for themselves. Because I know this. People that are caught deeply in sin say something like this. I am a slave. We use the word addiction. I am caught up in this. I can't get out of this. Well, in this text, what I realize is this. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved will be rescued. What does the individual have to do? Acknowledge your sin. 
Acknowledge my sin. Go to God and say, God, that list is me. And I confess that. The work of washing, setting apart, and making right with God is all in the hands of God. The individual makes no contribution to the change that is present in their life. It is a standing to which I apply no effort except repentance to say, God, I am broken and I need Your grace to forgive me. They are all passive. I can take no credit for any change that is present in my life, nor can you. It is all owing to the grace of God. And here's something else that is very beautiful. All of those verbs are past tense. Okay? They refer to a definitive, completed work of God that makes you no longer a fornicator, a stealer, an idolater, whatever on the list. Someone who is genuinely converted by God is not infected with the disease. They are sinners redeemed by the grace of God. Forgiven and their life trajectory is dramatically changed by the power of the Spirit of God when they call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the end of the verse says this, You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And I'll make two observations to close. Romans 10.13 says this, Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved. Literal meaning of the word, rescued. From what? From the list and the sobering warning that goes with it. Those that do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But whoever, and I love the contrast, but whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be washed, sanctified, and justified by the power of God. And all of the work of salvation is owing to the grace of God in that individual's life. The change that God brings is definitive. That's why John 3 calls it a new birth. The change that God brings is also progressive. That is why Paul is writing to the church. Okay? The sin of the world had tended to seep into the church. Paul is fighting back against that sin, calling the church to righteousness. He's saying, you were changed. Don't live the old life. That's the call here. But you were sanctified. You were washed. You were justified. You were made God's child. What is Paul doing? He's raising the work of God in saving faith as something they are to remember. And that remembering that is to draw them to a life of righteousness. That's the purpose. This morning, dear seeking friend, I don't know the depth of your sin, but I know this. It doesn't matter to God. It doesn't matter to God. He is willing to change your life if this morning you are willing to own your sin. If you are willing to say, God, that list describes me. That warning applies to me. I need hope. I am without hope. I need to be changed by the grace of God. There is hope in the name of Christ this morning. God can change you. All sin can be forgiven. I want to say this in three ways. All sin can be forgiven. All sin can be forgiven. All sin can be forgiven. You can go through that statement and just keep changing the emphasis. All sin, all sin, all sin can be forgiven. Folks, that's the message of hope that Paul holds out to the church in Corinth. It's the message of hope that the Word of God 
holds out to you this morning. The wickedness of your heart and the depth of your sin is no barrier to the grace of God for a repentant heart. Perhaps you're here this morning as a Christian and you have a question in your mind. Can my sin be conquered? Can my past sin be truly forgiven? All I want to remind you of is the grace of God that is revealed in Jesus Christ at the cross. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is no sin that God cannot forgive. And I think that's the purpose of this list. And Paul is saying to the church, such were some of you. Don't allow Satan to hold you captive to pass sin that God has forgiven. Don't let him do that. When he tempts you to despair, point to the cross of Christ. The reason we come to the Lord's table as we come to it today is because this celebration, these elements are a reminder of what God's grace can do, of how dramatically God can change a life. It is a reminder that God has freed us from the past life and that we shouldn't drift back towards the old patterns. And the purpose of it is that we come to the Lord's table. We hold in our hands elements that remind us of the washing of regeneration and the renewing that comes by the Holy Spirit. And we hold them and we look at those elements and we say, Jesus, thank You for what You did on the cross. Thank You for bearing the price of my sin. Thank You for forgiving me. And thank You for saving the people around me in spite of their background. It is purely an evidence of Your amazing grace. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?